This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, you're listening to Green Pulse and I'm Nirmal Ghosh, a new co-host for this channel along with David Fogarty. In this episode, we're going to look at human-wildlife conflict in India, which seems to be on the rise. Let me give you just one example. A few weeks ago, I got a message from a friend in a small town in the foothills of the Himalayas in the northern Indian state of Uttarakhand. She told me she had given up her daily walks because a tiger had been seen in the scrub jungle around where she lives. That tiger apparently killed three women and was eventually tranquilized and moved to a rescue center. Now, my guests for this episode are Kedar Gore, director of the Corbett Foundation, which works with forest departments and local populations across six states in India. I should say here that I am a trustee of the Corbett Foundation, so Kedar is in that sense a colleague. Those of you who know me, you know that wildlife conservation is a big part of my life as well. And I have as well Dr. Anish Andheria, President and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Trust, which works also across India, assisting state forest departments in a range of wildlife conservation endeavors, including wildlife crime prevention, training, habitat protection, and what have you, a wide range indeed. Uh, so Anish, may I begin with you? Human wildlife conflict seems to be rising as a result of wildlife conservation successes in many instances, more tigers, for instance. But we still have human population and infrastructure growth constraining habitat, limiting dispersal opportunities for wild species. And predators are not the only issue, of course. There is conflict with elephants as well, and not just in India, but in other range countries. What are your thoughts on this issue? Does the continuing growth of human populations and infrastructure mean we are in some senses or in some areas reaching the limits of wildlife conservation? Um. Thank you, Nirmal, for having me here. Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, India has really brought about a miracle in the last 20 years. Um, and wildlife populations have bounced back. Several carnivores uh, have bounced back from the brink of extinction. And so there are more than one reasons to celebrate. But uh, obviously, along with increasing populations, you have had... Uh, an increase in interface between large mammals and and humans. Um, and so there is a cascading effect of the growing population. And I can quote uh, some of the senior uh, scientists who surveyed uh, several of these areas in 1970s. And they say that they could walk 10 kilometers and see two spotted deer. And now in some of the well-managed parks in India, you have a prey density of more than 60 animals per square kilometer. And so that has translated into an increased population of carnivores. So lions, tigers, leopards, wherever they are found, their populations have gone up. And over the last, uh, I would say, 70, 80 years, since the time of uh, I'm going all the way when India got independent, uh, hunting was prevalent. And a lot of these animals were removed from the wildernesses. And so two generations have lost the understanding of carnivores. They don't know how to live with, with them. Uh, even elephant populations have plummeted. And now, because of this resurgence, you suddenly have these animals uh, roaming in very close proximity with human population. And as a result, there is a kind of a perception of conflict in people. I would say the word conflict is, is really 
not capturing the the real thing that's happening on the ground conflict is basically a perception in the minds of people wildlife is only using the landscape which we have given them now which is highly degraded as as soon as you get out of this park so the dispersal happens in areas which are degraded and they are going there for food they're going there for mates they're going there for uh, you know there are some of these denning sites are also very close to artificially created water bodies every village will have a water tank for agriculture and that becomes like a magnet for wildlife for pigs for cattle and that's what takes animals there so animals are doing what they were doing millions of years ago human beings are now perceiving them as threat and that's what is uh, you know brought about this misconception of conflict wildlife is not out there trying to eliminate human beings it is in our head so that we have to keep in mind and so i would say simply if you look at the map of india and you went back 100 years india was a sea of uh, natural ecosystems largely woodlands and grasslands uh, in some parts and human populations were in islands so small towns small villages and now 100 years later it's reverse which means you have a sea of human beings with islands of uh, natural spaces uh, woodlands or grasslands or whatever you call it and so that has really changed the dynamic and uh, as we move further and as india develops at this rapid pace we are going to see uh, greater interfaces between animals and people as a result there is going to be you know uh, attacks on people there will be a lot of persecution of wildlife and you can see that india has really done well in the last 20 years but now going forward we are now seeing uh, situations where people have actually burned a leopard alive after it was caught in a cage in a place like uttarakhand which was a hotbed for leopard conflict but we had never seen that kind of barbarism so people uh, and and i feel as a conservationist that india is very unique not only has the government uh, played a big role but i think the bigger role is played by the culture so this culture is what allows uh, large carnivores or mammals to coexist with people but now i see in the last uh, decade or so people are losing patience and going forward this could mean a death knell for so many species that we have really invested in and so i think yes linear infrastructure purchase of land after covid has gone up people have gone in and bought land all over up the, in the mountains himachal uttarakhand also around tiger reserves and that's going to fragment the landscape linear infrastructure we are building uh, 23 kilometers of four lane and six lane roads per day and that is going to go up to 44 kilometers a day and you can imagine the kind of uh, ecosystems it's going to fragment so this interaction and i would call it human wildlife a uh, negative interaction is only going to go up as we move ahead negative interaction yes that's a good phrase and i'm glad you mentioned the culture because having lived in the states as you know as a journalist and observed for the last few years um it's quite remarkable i think there's a far greater tolerance in the indian farmer or villager for living in proximity with wildlife large carnivores compared with the intolerance of say uh, american ranchers when it comes to say wolves which take a tiny fraction of livestock compared with what tigers for instance lift in uh, many areas in india now kedar uh, the corbett foundation as we know is also uh, involved in managing these interactions and uh, could you pitch in on that aspect as well uh, can you explain what the foundation does and what have you learned from what you've been working on these past few years Firstly, thank you very much, Nirmal, for having me on the Green Pulse podcast. It's great to share this space with Anish, a friend of more than thirty years. 
Anish has made some very, very important points of uh, human-wildlife negative interaction. So today we are in six states, uh, you know, working on several issues, but primarily addressing issues of human-wildlife negative interaction. It's a complicated situation, actually. And since Corbett Foundation has been there at the grassroots level, we have been regularly in touch with the local communities because that is what is the primary objective why the Corporate Foundation was set up to establish uh, harmonious coexistence between wildlife and human beings there. Uh, so we work with the local communities, try to understand their issues, uh, what challenges they face on a day-to-day basis, and try to provide them with solutions uh, of how they can reduce these problems or mitigate uh, the problems altogether. You just mentioned about you know uh, prey population being managed on the livestock, livestock being killed by carnivores in other areas. I'll be very happy to state here that the Corporate Foundation has been implementing a very, very important tiger conservation program since more than 25 years now. It started off as a very small uh, initiative called the Interim Relief Scheme, wherein the Corporate Foundation team visits the site of livestock depredation uh, by tigers or leopards within 24 or maximum 48 hours. And after ensuring that the kill is genuine, we pay interim compensation to the livestock owner immediately so that any kind of retaliatory measures are completely avoided. Because that was the era when we started. A uh, lot of such uh, cases of retaliation happened in that area. Uh, poisoning of pills was not very uncommon in those days. And uh, after this project was started, WWF India joined hands and we, WWF and Corporate Foundation has been implementing this scheme ever since. You would be amazed to know the kind of uh, the numbers that we have, uh, you know, given compensation uh, in, in these areas. Uh, about 16,000 plus cases since 1998 of livestock kills have been provided with interim compensation by us. And total amount spent so far is almost two crores and equal amount has been already spent in just implementing such project, you know, operational expenses and also the, uh, you know, mitigating any kind of conflict is an expensive affair, but organizations like us, if we don't do it, if we hadn't done it, it would have been a disaster. Although there was Project Tiger, everything was in place, but a lot of organizations like TCF, uh, WCT, WWF and many others have to join hands and they have joined hands and come together and only then conservation can be a success. Now, I may want to add a little bit on the negative interaction we are talking about. I think, mm-hmm. you know, managing or rather manipulating of tiger habitats, we have gone a little overboard on, on, on this aspect. In the last 20 years, several villages have been translocated, relocated from the tiger reserves and that area has been completely inviolate for wildlife. Meadows have been allowed to develop there, and they have been manipulated and they have been maintained as meadows. Uh, ecological meadows. succession meadows. Mm-hmm. Ecological succession has we have stopped ecological succession happening in such places. This kind of habitat manipulation has given rise to I think exponential population of uh, herbivores, especially spotted deer, uh, even wild boars, and these have attracted definitely tigers and leopards and other carnivores. Their population has increased. And the increase in the population of these spotted deer has also affected 
negatively the habitat around. Because as we see in the last few years, all of us have observed is that many areas in the best managed tiger reserves like Kana, Corbett, Kandagat, and many others, the invasive species have increased a lot. Now, how does that happen? If we and these are in core areas. I'm, I'm not even talking of buffer zone. Buffer zones are a lot more degraded than the core areas. Now, if this happens in core areas, then how does this happen? And why does this happen? Mm -hmm. I think we need to now uh, take a break and look at all the you know activities and strategies that we have applied so far in implementing Project Tiger, managing tiger populations and tiger reserves. We need to reflect on what we have done. If we think that something needs to be modified, now is the time to do that. Because I believe in certain areas, now we have ended up in a, being a problem of plenty. Uh, there are many more tigers, there are many more leopards, there are many more spotted deer and disease, you know, completely circled into human uh, wildlife negative interactions. And this will escalate. This will just escalate if we keep on doing business as usual. So, so in other words, it's a bit of a backlash. Is is a potential backlash is brewing? Well, we can say that now. I mean, there are several areas. There are several areas, several tiger reserves where there are no tigers. There are very few tigers. Uh, now, there has been thought that you know some tigers, some some tiger reserve where their tiger population is very high. Some tigers could be from there could be put in those areas where tiger populations are low. This was tied in, uh, you know, more than six to seven uh, attempts, I, as I know, but it has not been successful. And I don't think it will be successful. You have to let tiger population grow organically. It can't be a forced, uh, you ask a tiger, you know, take the tiger from here to that area and let tiger, suddenly the tiger will rise there. It doesn't happen. The local communities have to be involved. They need to understand why this has been done. If this whole exercise will be futile, and has proved futile because local communities have rejected the newcomers that is there. Okay, just going back to a quick data point for our international listeners, you mentioned the figure of two crore Indian rupees over a, a period of decades to compensate you know, uh, locals for the domestic cattle kills. That translates into a little less than 300,000 US dollars, which is really not that much if it's measured over decades, so it goes a long way. Now, uh, Anish... I believe that in recent conferences, there has been some debate, a new debate over the potential for revenue and of conflict reduction that could come with allowing limited hunting, as is done in some places in Africa. How serious is this debate and does the idea find any traction or is it a no-go in the Indian context? Anish, if you could uh, elaborate a bit on that. Yes, uh, Nirmal, I think uh, it's a important question and I have been part of uh, some discussions that have happened on the side amongst some fellow conservationists, some retired forest officers, um, some policymakers, bureaucrats who used to hunt. Like Because India for more than 200 years was under colonial rule and wildlife was treated like game there. At that point, there have been instances where there's a team of hunters have brought down 20 tigers in a week. There have been mass hunting of uh, waterfowl in a place called Kerala Devighana National Park, which is one of the most beautiful and, and very, very important winter staging ground for birds in Rajasthan. There have been hunts where more than seven, 8,000 birds were brought down in a day. India launched what is called the Wildlife Protection Act of 1972. 
and as soon as the act came all kind of hunting was banned that along with the launch of project tiger which happened concurrently almost in the say on the in one year later that is 1973 uh, these two instruments along with the forest conservation act fc act that came in 1980 these three together are responsible for whatever flora or fauna we currently enjoy and so hunting while some amount of hunting can be tolerated by some species and that we know from experiences in america in africa in in some some area some countries where it's allowed uh was really was not something that we have done in the last uh, 50 years there are a lot of people uh, and there are there are detractors who say that while there is no official hunting uh, there is hunting of prey and if given an opportunity even an endangered species is being hunted as we speak in india having said that animals don't lie and so if the population of these animals have really uh, gone up especially from 1972 onwards obviously there is a direct correlation between all that uh, was stopped and regulated and and the populations that you see now so that background is important to understand why people are resistant or are are not very willing to allow it because as a country while people um uh india has done well in conservation it's still very very difficult to regulate anything here so if you allow controlled hunting it is going to open up a channel where illegal hunting will also happen in much more openly now um and there will be huge collapse of wildlife and when these kind of collapses happen obviously the carnivores will not be hunted so much but the prey will be hunted to start with Uh, there will be a cascading effect of that on human wildlife uh, in negative interactions because the tiger population or the leopard population carnivore population will then go for the cattle uh, and so while hunting can be discussed i think if you look at the culture uh, of many many states and our capacity to regulate any law it is very very risky to open up something uh, which we cannot control even in africa hunting model has not really worked right kedar your views on that hunting will open the flood gates um, do you agree i totally agree with what anish has said uh, in india we believe you know india is a religious country we have our beliefs uh, people worship tigers and people worship many other animals introducing any kind of trophy hunting or legalizing hunting will open pandora's box Uh, there are several people several local communities or even uh, you know several greedy people who would be wanting to take this opportunity in killing many more animals that are actually being permitted because once you give an instrument legalize you know having a gun and somebody going and killing an animal in a forest somewhere then it's impossible to regulate whether that person kills only one animal or 10 animals uh, so that's going to be a a huge problem and uh, as as anish said uh, in africa this has not worked really on a long term basis despite hunting being legal in some of the african countries the population of uh, wild animals has gone down there are many more animals that are going into illegal wildlife trade despite all this one example is uh, there are I mean, I was going to Traffic India's website, and I read that uh, on average, uh, 110 wild tigers entered illegal trade chain in Asia for past 16 years. 
Now, despite having so many tiger farms in China, still there is a demand for this. So just imagine what will happen if you legalize hunting in India. The other thing is we must recognize why this whole debate has started. The whole debate has started because there are certain animals, species of animals, their population has risen to such an extent that they are now perceived as a huge problem by the people in India. Monkeys, macaques, langurs, they are attacking fields. Uh, and I think we are to be blamed if we go to any of the hill stations uh, where people visit for you know leisure purposes. You will see thousands of people wanting to feed monkeys, thousands of truck drivers who are driving on the road. They just feed monkeys. I mean, giving food, ready-made food, having ready-made food around is only going to affect the population of monkeys. I mean, their, their population is manifold and it has happened. Now, this is something that we can regulate and we must regulate. The other thing is there is also a discussion being going on about using immunocontraception and other ways of sterilizing uh, animals whose population we perceive as being high. Uh, so this discussion is on and I think we need to seriously look into this issue from this point of view where scientifically we can, if possible, bring down the population of certain species of animals over a period of time using non-lethal methods. Right. Okay. Um, on a slightly different note, I just, you know, you, you both spend a lot of time in the field. Among the local communities you work with, how much awareness is there of the larger threat of climate change and the warming planet? Uh, briefly, if you could uh, tell me. Anish, start with you. See, I think uh, climate change and the threat from climate change is yet to, I mean, the understanding of climate change really has yet to percolate down to people when you talk of the theory. But uh, you and I mm -hmm. are capable of regulating our temperatures at the home. We are able to buy more expensive water. We are able to live a life no matter how difficult it is becoming in terms of expenditure, bad weather and all that. And so uh, for us, it's easier to adapt to it because we have the money. Uh, so people in the hinterlands, people who are actually farmers, people who are dependent on river systems, they actually experience the wrath of the erratic behavior of climate. They just don't call it as climate change. But if whenever we go and our, uh, my teams are working with communities in several states, in fact, we work in 23 states, and we're carrying out some very, very deep uh, surveys with people and interactions with communities who are living in different biogeographic zones of India. And um, pretty much all of them have not said that they experience climate change, but if you ask them about their livelihoods, about their dependence on the forest, about the, uh, the, the kind of incomes, they do tell you that in the last 20 years, uh, things have gone uh, out of control. And pretty much there is hardly any community who live in remote areas which is not in a perpetual cycle of debt. And so their agriculture has failed. They have put more fertilizer. They have put more pesticide. The surface water is now not there. So they are pumping water out. The government is subsidized uh, pumps, solar pumps. So the pumps are pumping out more water than what is required because you know, they don't know the potential, how much, uh, and the electricity is also, when you say a certain state is fully electrified, 
it's really it means that everybody has access to electricity but they probably are getting electricity for two or three hours and that too uh, in the nights when the cities are sleeping uh, and so they keep their pumps open and so the bore well is sucking water out so if wherever you require say one gallon they're using five gallons because there is no regulation there so if you talk to people they tell you from their experience their life in a village in a remote area is becoming and has become very very difficult in the last two decades so mm-hmm. scientists like us can correlate what they are saying with what the cities and people uh, how we understand climate change so really i would say uh, people don't call or or don't uh, attribute things to climate change in the remote areas but they definitely have uh, suffered much more than us and they do know that there is something uh, weird happening around them uh, definitely uh, fishers farmers they know and they do experience climate change firsthand it's just that they don't call it that right um kedar a last quick word from you you recently received a prestigious award the sanctuary wildlife service award let me ask you in all these years what might you say are perhaps the two biggest lessons or the best practices that stand out from your work with the cobble foundation very briefly is two best practices i would say nirmal i mean i have spent now more than 15 years with this foundation and uh, i've learned so much being on the field and interacting with all the people with my colleagues as well as the local communities now one of the things that uh, we did and i'm really proud of it is the habitat restoration work that we started in 2017 so we all have uh, spent a lot of time in the field and we have seen ourselves that the forests in central india or any other part of the country have degraded uh, although there may be claims uh, that the forest area of india has increased however those of us who have spent time in the field would definitely agree with me that the forest area uh, forest quality has degraded a lot i mean there were areas which belonged to the forest department under uh, you know forest divisions but there were no trees no grasses nothing they were completely barren lands now this has only happened because there has been unregulated grazing unregulated lopping of trees and that is what the local communities when we say that you know their dependence on forest is very high this is what it means you know in tiger reserves it is all very regulated and uh, you know controlled however when you move out of these areas which are equally good tiger habitats you see forest in such uh, horrible condition so what we did as the foundation that we started on projects that would restore this degraded forest and i'm really happy to say that so far in the central indian landscape about 2000 hectares of uh, degraded forest have been taken up for restoration some of the areas we have already restored and handed over to the forest department and received quite good appreciation from the department and many other conservationists mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the things that i think is doable and should be taken up seriously by many other organizations who are working in different geographies of india we are also doing uh, grassland restoration work in western india in kutch district of gujarat which is primarily the great indian bustard habitat where i mean the this bird has really faced enormous uh, decline in the last few years one of the most endangered birds in the world actually yeah it's it's seemed it's one of the most endangered birds of india today uh, less than perhaps uh, 100 birds or even around 80 or less than 80 remain in the wild today Uh, now we have with the lo- local villagers we have taken up restoration of such areas and 
completely transform these areas into uh, natural grasslands. Now, which has a dual benefit that not only the local uh, livestock can stall feed on it, at the same time, it is extremely beneficial to the local birds and other, uh, you know, smaller herbivores and the species that are there. So these are two of the projects that I'm really, really proud of. And I would appeal to many other conservation organizations to replicate these in as many areas as possible. Habitat restoration works, basically. Habitat restoration works. Excellent. Okay. Um, Kedar Gore and Anish Andheria, thank you so much. I know you uh, gentlemen are mostly found in the field, so I have to thank you especially for anchoring yourself to a Wi-Fi connection today for this. Thank you. So that wraps it up for Green Pulse. Once again, I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Thanks for listening. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.